Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And uh, Paul, just me, you, and Justin tonight, huh? Yeah, that feels good. Feels right. All right, Justin, I'm referring to is, of course, the great Justin Burke. Justin, you've been with us uh, on many shows recently. Thank you for coming back. Happy to be along for the ride. We like to refer to Justin as the new steward. (laughs) (laughs) Justin does not like us to refer to him as the new steward. Uh Uh-oh. Everything froze up for me. And much like Stuart, he's suffering from horrible technical problems at the end of the show. This, <laughs> this, this is perfect. <laughs> we did the pun joke in. I had a, did you get the great pun joke in. No, no. So, what was your oh. pun joke? <laughs> I said, I, I said, I'll try to find a good pun since it's the hidden curriculum. <laughs> okay. Oh, now no wonder I, your sound cut out. That was probably your computer doing that in protest. <laughs> was, yeah. All right, Paul. Did you want to tell people uh, before everyone turns off the show? Do you want to tell them what we do on the show? <laughs> Absolutely. We we are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also like to get to know the guest a little bit at the beginning of the show, but if you want to skip past that stuff to the, the meat, um, just look at the timestamps in the show notes, and I won't judge you this time around. Oh, that's that's very nice of you, Paul. You're really taking a softer tone than the last one that I just edited where you uh, <laughs> really let the audience tea. have it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the Yogi brand tea has really made a difference. I'm I'm feeling like a new person. Okay, so yeah. uh, on this episode, we talk about the hidden curriculum. As Paul said, if you don't know what that is, we define it right up front. But we we go through a couple cases of both good and bad behaviors and point out how these kind of send messages to patients and learners. And we point out some ways to do things better and some pitfalls. It's, I think it's a really useful episode, certainly for you to take a look at your own behaviors and, and how you're modeling them for your learners or even just for your colleagues. So uh, without further ado, Justin, why don't you tell us about our wonderful guest for tonight? Excellent. So our guest is Dr. Sanjay Desai. He is the director of the Osler Medical Training Program at Johns Hopkins and is a specialist in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He has been recognized for his skills as an educator with numerous teaching awards and leadership awards. He's published widely in medical education and critical care and has been elected as a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He earned his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and completed his medical residency and subspecialty fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he also served as a chief resident. He lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife and twin boys, and he's generally just a very nice guy, so we're excited to have him. Sanjay is also one of the co-authors of the article, Hidden Curricula, Ethics, and Professionalism, Optimizing Clinical Learning Environments in Becoming and Being a Physician, a position paper of the American College of Physicians. And later in the podcast, we talk about duty hours. He's also one of the lead authors in the iCompare study. So an expert in both of those realms. We're very excited to have him. So Sanjay, we've just discussed, you and I are both in our podcast forts in our basement. Uh, Paul and Justin look like they're in my, much more comfortable recording locations, but I think we should start here. That, let's do it. All right. So how about you give the audience a one-liner to, to describe yourself, just so they can get a flavor of who you are and get, include something outside of what you do in medicine? 
Oh, sure. So I'm a, uh, a program director in internal medicine, but uh, I think more excitingly, I'm an aspiring triathlete. Um, and probably my greatest success recently is I survived Disney with two twin boys and my wife uh, for the last week. So <laughs> I'm happy to be emerging from that. Uh, yeah. How old are the boys? They're 12 now, seventh grade. Yeah, uh, that's like a whole different set of problems than what I'm dealing with the uh, the early elementary school type behaviors. So <laughs> the problems I think get um, they they definitely get less frequent, but more meaningful. So and more complex. So enjoy. I think every every year is obviously enjoyable, but enjoy the younger ages while you have them. Yeah, yeah. The problems like any problem almost can be kind of cute when they're a little kids, but I feel like once they're, once they're like preteens, it's like they could start doing some real damage. So you got a, you got a lot more to worry about. <laughs> so Sanjay, I think something now that my book recommendations, the list has gotten just almost untenable, but I'm still going to go for it and just add one to it. So, um, can you, can you tell us a book that every physician should read? Or if not, I, I will cheerfully take just a book that you've enjoyed recently. No, no, I, I think that the one I recommend often is Drive, which may already be on your list by Daniel Pink. It, uh, I think it's great because it, it um, gives evidence and science behind motivation. And if, uh, so his, his, the three points that he makes to motivate people, because people usually think money, for example, will motivate people uh, or power, but what he finds are autonomy, purpose, <clears throat> and um, and meaning and, and mastery, sorry, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And these are the three things I think are what drive people to go into medicine. So I think every physician would enjoy the book because it, it ultimately comes down to what has driven us, I think, to, to select this as a field to pursue. Oh, that's a fantastic recommendation. That seems to, to dovetail kind of right into adult learning theory, which, of, of course, is important to all of us. Yeah, goes well with the episode. Uh, Sanjay, so should you share uh, one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever received, either as a teacher or a learner uh, uh, for residents that are that are still kind of going through the process of the medical education system? Yeah, so I, um, there, there's so many pieces of advice that I've gotten that I find are meaningful. But uh, for me, as, so if you think about a learning environment, I think the, for learners, the best advice that I received and that I try to give is to feel uh, to open yourself and feel vulnerable so that you can learn everything that there is to learn. I think too often we are either nervous or feel uh, somehow uh, unsafe or feel somehow pressured and that it creates this environment or that you're, you're trying to get the right answer. And all of those things I, I think will limit ultimately what you receive in education. And, um, at least what we try to stress is that the training program is the first time that most people have left a university setting in the sense that they, until then, were always just studying for tests. And if you pass a test, you do well. Whereas here, you have to learn. And if you don't learn, if you don't really learn what it is that you're trying to um, get out of a training program, then the only people that suffer in the end are the patients that you're ultimately going to treat. And so I think that uh, we have to, as learners, be open to getting things wrong and feel safe for asking when you don't understand something or you don't hear something or, or if you don't uh, know what to do next. And I think, um, for me, that was the best advice as a learner. It's what I try to share with our learners. That's great. 
as, as a teacher, similarly, if you asked as a teacher, as a teacher or an educator, I think it's exactly the, the same as creating a setting in which people feel that safety uh, and they feel that opportunity to feel, to, to ask questions and to um, share what they're, what they're feeling. Because if we don't create that type of safe learning environment that is nurturing to inquiry, then I think, um, again, we may not feel the consequences now, but certainly we will in the future, not just ourselves, but I think more importantly, the patients that our physicians treat. I think sometimes we actually forget, well, I won't put this on you guys, I'll, I'll just put it on myself, but I sometimes forget that you just don't have to teach medical facts. You can teach where to look for those things, like that's often as important or maybe even more so. So to say to the team, I don't know the answer to that, let's look at this particular resource to find out the answer. It's still a teaching point. It may not be, you know, one of the cardinal features of myeloma or something, but it's it's something they may actually use more often than that. So it's I think it's important to not revel in your ignorance, but at least show that it's okay to not know the answer. But it's more important that you actually go and find out what that answer is. I, I so I would say that's even more important these days because the what we used to teach against was you know facts, right. and I think facts are the things that people will have available at their you know on their smartphone or you know, easily there'll be a, a more accurate representation and, and volume of facts that are available to, the, to them immediately uh, than you can possibly remember. So I think it's far more important to teach them how to get answers and how to think through problems and how to approach patients and their, their questions and their, their symptoms than it is to know those types of facts. And, you know, if we think about the future, which you know, so ultimately we have to train people for the future in which they're, they're going to practice. And I think that uh, many of the, the facts are going to be taken over or, you know, uh, given to us by algorithmic medicine or computers or anything. You know, what we can't, what, what they will never take are, are the, you know, the, our presence at the bedside. They can't take our empathy. They can't take our curiosity. They can't take our approach away. And those are the things I think we have to start to emphasize more and more. Um, and I think are at risk, actually, in the environment that we're in now. But, but I, so I can't agree with you more. I, I really believe that uh, teaching facts is not a helpful way to prepare people for the future in which they're going to they're gonna treat patients. And this, this segues very nicely into the actual topic tonight, which is where we are going to try to point out some bad behaviors and praise some good behaviors. Uh, and a lot of these are, are behaviors by attending physicians, which... Uh, is what what made me want to do this topic, the the hidden curriculum paper that you had written with a couple co-authors. And there were a couple recommendations that you all made. I was wondering if you could kind of start us off with like a big picture of what those were. And then Justin, Paul, and I will each kind of read through some cases and you can point out some of these uh, hidden curriculum things that, that we want to talk about tonight. Sure. No, and thank you again, for having me on and focusing on this topic. Um, the reason we chose this from the ACP is because we think it's, it's in fact hidden and it needs to be exposed further. And uh, you're giving us the platform to be able to do that, I think, at a much wider reach than we would have otherwise been able to do. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> what, uh, we have a few principles I think we were trying to achieve with the hidden curriculum. The first is literally to just expose it. Um, I don't think... And we've talked about hidden curriculum in the retreats that we, we have for our residents, and it's not something that everybody has, has heard about. And I think it is, in my view, more powerful as an influence to behavior 
than the other types of curricula that our residents typically receive. And I think that's largely because it's not spoken to. So I think our, the, the first message that we have is that there is a hidden curriculum, and I'm happy to define that uh, further if that's helpful, um, and that that can be both positive and it can be negative. So uh, maybe I will just define it quickly <clears throat> for the audience, for those of you that, that haven't um, thought about it. So they're, they're, we're all familiar with the formal curriculum. The formal curriculum is what we all receive. Uh, the easiest example is in schoolwork. You get objectives for what you're going to hear about in the lecture, and you get tested against those, and the curriculum is developed to, to teach those principles. And, and, and so that's a formal curriculum. It's well understood. It's very transparent and structured. <clears throat> There's also, I think, uh, an informal curriculum that will is, is very recognizable once you once you label it. And, and those are the, the teaching moments that people prepare for that they intend to teach through. And so the easiest probably example that we're all familiar with is bedside rounds. Bedside rounds is a, is a form for teaching, and it is something that typically people will prepare for. And even if they haven't prepared, they, their discussion at the bedside in rounds is intended to convey knowledge. And so there is a purposefulness to it. Uh, that is that is I think again transparent to both the teacher and to the learner and so that's it's not prepared but that's a, therefore it's an informal curriculum and then finally there's this hidden curriculum and I think again this is pervasive in not only medicine but in society so the hidden curriculum just in way of background is not something that was first coined for for medicine it's uh it's a it's something that was first described in, in sociology, so it's a societal phenomenon. All of us, I think, are familiar with the fact that in a society we create norms and uh, expectations of one another, and these are, these are learned by watching people and, and seeing how they both interact and how they behave. Uh, and those create these guardrails, if you will, for how, what's expected of us the norms that are expected, and these are related to our values, related to our behaviors, related to our attitudes. And so that's, that's a normal thing that any society will create, and it's, it's created equally importantly in medicine. And it can be, and this is, I think, an important point, it can be both good and bad. I think often when you hear about the hidden curriculum, we, we talk about it in a negative fashion. So we talk about things that are hidden that then influences in a, in a way that we don't want people to, 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 to achieve, but often the hidden curriculum will promote very valuable behaviors that we want to, we want our residents and our physicians and others that we interact with to, to behave like. And so it can be both good and bad. So again, the first, I think, um, principle that we have is to just simply state that there is a hidden curriculum, that it is both good and bad, and that we should, as educators or leaders of a program or role models, if you will, of, a, of junior physicians or even participants in a clinical delivery environment, so it doesn't have to be a training program, that we all are responsible for uh, both acknowledging and then both and promoting uh, this hidden curriculum, ideally in the, obviously in the good way. Um, so that's the first one is that we, we need to recognize it and we need to recognize it's good and bad and that... Um, and we all play a role in it. The second, and there's only three, but the second point would be that the environment in which we practice and in which we learn should um, be one in which there is uh, respect 
there's inquiry, there's honesty, and that everyone in the environment, and this goes back to what we were talking about with the lessons that I learned as a learner, uh, everybody needs to feel safe. And if you feel safe and you have respect and you respect others, then um, that promotes all of the good things that we want in the society and therefore all of the good things that we want in this hidden curriculum. And then finally, the third point, is that the people that do direct these environments, the leaders of these environments, need to create and establish a very strong culture of, um, of, of ethical discussion and an opportunity for people to uh, formally think about these things, discuss them, and to display them. So there's a role for leaders, there's a role for all of us, and there's a need for us to uh, acknowledge this exists. Sanjay, I wanted to. I just wanted to point out that the one of the big things that drew me to this when when I first I had not heard the term, or maybe I had, but I hadn't really thought about it. And when I read your paper, uh, you know, it came up in my newsfeed when it when it was released, and I read it, and I just like had this moment where I was like, oh yeah, I really need to like tighten up my behavior in front of learners. Like I was thinking of like things I'd done that I was thinking of all the bad things I'd done, not necessarily the good things that I'd done, but, and I think it's, it's not just me. I think it's, you, you can just walk by nursing stations. You can walk by your colleagues having talks. You can see the residents passing on these bad behaviors. You know, like it's kind of like once you're awoken to the fact that this exists, uh, you can sort of see it everywhere if you're thinking about it. And I think people, start out of these like really idealistic medical students and then they kind of veer off the path as they get into like all these like jaded toxic personalities and of course I'm being very cynical uh there's still some fantastic people around that that seem to be more immune to this than others or maybe more just aware of it so we'll go through some cases and point some of these things out good and bad and uh you can kind of teach us about the hidden curriculum in each case and Justin, why don't we get you to start off with... Uh, Matt, Matt yeah. just on that point, if I, if I might. So um, I think it's helpful, at least it was helpful for me to, as, I, as we wrote this paper and thought about it, to think about the, the reality that the hidden curriculum is all around us and everything that we do. Um, and so I thought about it a lot more, because you were talking about these episodes at work, mm-hmm. which I think are all relevant. Um, but I started to think about it even at home. And... Um, you know, how I behave at home. And, and we talked about my kids earlier. And like an easy example would be that I was home uh, in the evenings. And I w- if I were to spend an hour with my children, but I'm on the phone uh, because I want to spend time with my children, that's the message I'm sending, but I'm on my phone checking email every two minutes while I'm with them versus if I'm home and even if I have 10 minutes with them, but everything is put away and, and I'm present and I'm with them, I'm meaningfully interacting, then um, that was 10 minutes that felt like an hour to them, that one hour that I spent with them wasn't even noticed. And so that was an example, at least to me, a re- sort of a shock to mm-hmm. me about how the hidden curriculum can be um, so, uh, um, it can influence your future behavior in such a helpful way. Uh, because I think for me, the hidden curriculum there was that I, I simply wasn't present. I was sending a message that, you know, being physically there is not really being there. And, um, and they did, weren't valuing that. And that became immediately apparent to me. So anyway, the, the reason I say this is because it, I think about it much more at work now when I realize how much it influences me, affects me, and how much of a role I play with it and interact with it outside of work. 
But I, I think one of the, and we'll get to the cases, but I, and probably even get to the specific point, but I think one of the things that I like about the framing of the hidden curriculum in, in the paper and just sort of the way that you talk about it is I, and I, if you listen to the show, you know, we're a huge fan of self-flagellation. Like we like sort of publicly beating ourselves up on the air, but I, I think that, and I, there's a role for that. I think recognizing bad behaviors and, and what they may be conveying is important, but also I like that this is framed as an opportunity to role model good behaviors and positive things and empathy and and humanism and that kind of thing. So I, I like that it's not just avoiding acting like a jerk, but it is also demonstrating that you can act like a, a caring and humanistic human being as well. So I think it's, I, I like that it's framed so positively uh, in the paper as well. So I think from a resident standpoint too, I, uh, not to put off the cases even more, but I remember my first night before being a senior resident or supervising resident and trying to figure out what kind of senior resident I wanted to be. And a lot of the behaviors I think that I took on were from seniors that I had had previously, both good and bad. And so it is a lot of learned behavior um, that I, I think, I don't know, it was very, very prevalent for, for me over the past three years. Yeah, so, Justin, you might remember at your junior retreat before you became a senior, we talked, so what, again, this is absolutely. how I've thought about this so much more. Um, we have all of our residents before they become seniors to reflect on when they were interns and they had their seniors. And do we, we don't only talk about um, the seniors that you want to be like. At the same time, we ask them to think about what, who were, what were those attributes of seniors that you absolutely do not want to be like, because they influence you as much as the absolutely. ones that you want. I mean, hopefully you have many more good than bad, but yeah. only with that combination can you find the right messaging and behaviors and attitudes that you want to then convey to, to your learners. Absolutely. All right. So one of our first cases um, that we'll, we'll talk about is a medical student who is admitting a patient that has schizophrenia um, and presents with fevers and concerns for cellulitis. Uh, the medical student discusses the patient with the resident, and the resident explains she's so relieved that the student will have to listen to the patient's crazy stories um, so that the resident doesn't have to. Um, the resident then further insinuates the patient's probably just fine, is pretending to be sick to get a bed and a meal. So in this case, a few of the questions that come up is, you know, what is most likely uh, to occur at uh, one's institution, our institution, Cashlack Memorial Hospital? Uh, and some of the um, descriptions that I think come from your presentation talking about, uh, you know, perhaps the resident has four other admissions. They're happy. This is an easy one. It puts them over the cap um, and they can continue going on with the rest of their work. Uh, another uh, is the intern is in a transitional year from psychiatry. They're just glad there's no active medical problems. Third, the student worries uh, the attending will ask for a psych history, even though the patient really has, quote, no psychiatric problems warranting admission. And then finally, the attending leaves the patient for the last few minutes of rounds because he's worried the team will be delayed from a tangential HPI. So you kind of talk about this case and some of these responses and what is the hidden curriculum and how can this uh, have gone better? Yeah, so I, I think a version of this probably has happened to everyone. And, um, you know, these are, these are fabricated cases, but I think we tried to pull in parts of the uh, hidden curriculum that we think are, are common. So there's a few here. So I think one, one is just the, the use of the word crazy, which I think is in the, in the story. And it's an example of how we... Um, label our either patients or even colleagues in, in ways that we um, 
hopefully don't intend to, and I think certainly send messages about value. And so in this one, it was crazy, but in our hospital, we have a large uh, population of patients that suffer from sickle cell disease, and we've had, we've had um, physicians call, you know, we have another sickler, for example. We've had, we have, we are, we have an epidemic of, of IV uh, drug use in our, in our city, and so we have shooter with fever is another f- term that, that has been said often in the past. And all of these, brand, the, these labels about patients convey, uh, again, a value that I hope that our physicians certainly don't intend to convey. And it, um, it immediately, for anyone around that's not part of the system, uh, sends a message about what you think about these other um, people. And, and so I think that's, that's one important hidden message or hidden curriculum that, that has to be confronted. And this dates back decades. If you go to read House of God, they talk about all of the terms that we used to use, that physicians used to use, like Gomer, um, to, to uh, again, uh, speak about patients or hits for admissions. I and mean, there's so many of these. So, so I think that's one, one hidden curriculum phenomenon here. We can talk about how to confront that. Uh, the second is the, the residents' um, balance between uh, all the things that are happening to them. So they, have, they, they are busy and they are getting into another admission, which, which does mean uh, more work for them. It, um, it is going to be, um, uh, they have to teach, they, have, they may not sleep, they have all these other physical and work compression attributes that I think often are, <clears throat> I, I think others in the hospital will say, you know, just be better than that and, and, and you shouldn't behave that way. And I think those are fairly naive ways to address those symptoms of what it's like to be a trainee. And so I think there's a, the hidden curriculum here would be the resident, or, or sorry, the, the, the others that are seeing this resident and immediately passing judgment that they are somehow um, bad because they're using these terms or they're, they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And we can talk about that one. And that's, I think, a really important one. And then finally, I think there's also messaging about um, the fact that this resident is feeling this way <clears throat> For me, it is a very important or um, is a very important sign for others to pick up on. Uh, first of all, it sends the hidden curriculum to the to the learner that this is not enjoyable, that this is work, that this is uh, uh, difficult, all of those kinds of things that this person must be feeling. Um, that you're not empathic, which I think is the biggest um, harm that might might result from this type of interaction with the medical student. And so those are all, I think those are all important ones, but the ones that I would focus on are um, the ones that are, are truly hidden and the ones that I, I feel like I've learned over time. So, and, and they are related to this resident. So if I believe that everyone that comes into uh, training programs, those that have entered the, the field of medicine are, you know, 99.99% of them are really good people. And so if they start to behave in a way like this, where we, they're not upholding the values that you might think are, are the ones that are ideal, or if they are you know, even worse, you can imagine they're being rude or they're being uh, disrespectful or not empathic at all, or somehow start even confrontations or, can't, or conflicts that can't be resolved. The, 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 common, um, the very common 
uh, response to that is that there's something wrong with this person. They're, they're, they're a bad person. Uh, you shouldn't behave this way. You should never uh, act this way in front of a medical student. And all of those kinds of responses, I think, are very common. And I think that sense, that's a really poor hidden curriculum because what that says is that, you, you know, we think you shouldn't act this way, but it does not acknowledge that the fact that our learning environment, these are symptoms that are actually normal to feel. It is normal to feel frustrated. It's normal to feel helpless. It's actually increasingly apparent to feel a high level of burnout in the setting that, in which we work. So the message that I would have for our trainees and for faculty or anyone that works in these areas, if you're around someone that is behaving this way, that your response should be, are you okay? Not uh, disciplining them or somehow... Um, you know, talking about the fact that they're not acting well or acting properly, it's really, you know, are you okay? Because our work environment is not one in which it's a very high-stress environment and it's one in which people, um, uh, especially when they're fatigued, need support. And, um, again, the hidden curriculum to me in this scenario is one for the medical student. I think that's a transparent one. But the other one is that we walk away generally from this environment or from that situation thinking that this resident is bad. And, and to me, that, that's a problem. What we need to uncover is that the circumstances in our learning environment have probably enabled that behavior, and we need to somehow peel that apart, provide support, and ensure people are, are feeling healthy. Um, and that, to me, is, is the hidden part, the more hidden part that we need to pay more attention to. Is there anything else, Paul, did you have something to say about the case? No, not about the case. I think that's uh, an interesting point that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you know, this, the behaviors may be a marker for burnout. I guess I actually had a question is, is in terms of sort of addressing, addressing these behaviors and being explicit or at least being mindful of hidden curriculum, does that do anything to mitigate against burnout since it is, this may be a symptom of a graver cause? Like does, does actually this kind of curriculum help with that or is that a separate issue entirely? No, no, I think, I, I, you know, I think we were trying to, that's an entire different um, talk, I think, or a discussion that, that uh, I think is really important to have is how, you know, what is driving burnout and, and how to manage it and how to respond to it. But to me, it, um, it, it must be linked. The idea that, uh, that we, we create environments in which people can feel helpless, and there's lots of reasons for that, uh, and then the response from the leadership or from the attendings or from the supervisors or the more experienced people is that you just shouldn't behave that way, I think will drive burnout even further and faster. And uh, because it creates more helplessness, there must be something wrong with me if I can't behave in the way that everyone is expecting me to behave without acknowledging the fact that it is actually the environment that's enabling a lot of it or fostering or nurturing a lot of these these symptoms. And so I think that we have to have open discussions um, about why people feel these way, this way or, or any of these symptoms and are acting. If they ever act out, again, I think that almost everyone is, is good uh, and they have the best of intentions. And so if they're acting or behaving in a way that's erratic, it's not likely because they're an erratic person or they're a bad person. It's probably because something's wrong. And so I, I think that we have to confront that. That is part of the hidden curriculum, the idea that we don't acknowledge that, we don't think about it, um, and we just say you shouldn't behave this way. I think that that's a very important 
influence on burnout. That's my hypothesis, at least, and I think that is certainly my experience. And so I think um, so I think they're linked very strongly. I'd like to move on to the next case, and this is another case, of course, as all our cases are from Cashlack Memorial. So this is the same team, and I should have mentioned actually. I, I think we got it wrong there. So Paul Williams uh, is the medical student on this team. Uh, I'll be the intern. Justin, of course, is the senior resident, and uh, Sanjay, you, you, you'll be the attending for any instances where okay. there's an attending. Okay. And I'm sorry, but importantly in this outline, it's precocious medical students, yeah. so I just want well, to please get full credit. <laughs> yeah. Pretending to be Sanjay's sen- uh, competent senior resident is really going to you know, <laughs> be a tough, uh, really take all my acting potential. Okay. All right. So the next day, a patient is transferred from the intensive care unit after uh, being admitted for a submassive PE. He's recovering well on anticoagulation until uh, I heard that there's a sudden complaint of worsening shortness of breath. So on hearing of Mr. Green's acute change, the, uh, the resident, Justin, excuses himself from rounds. He walks past the patient's room, orders an EKG, a chest X-ray, and a troponin. So uh, Sanjay, the question the question for this one is, which of the following is most likely to occur at your institution? So is it that the resident would uh, kind of get into the rule-out PE order set in the EMR right away and then get back to rounds? Uh, is the attending already running late and wondering, you know, who didn't pre-round on this service to find this, I guess, to find this this patient who was kind of decompensating? The, the intern, uh, me, I, I was prepared to give a talk on the next patient. Now I think I'm going to get bumped again. I spent all, all this time preparing my talk. And Paul Williams wonders where, where, is his, where are his tuition dollars going when every teaching rounds uh, is spent putting out fires instead of teaching? Um, yeah, so it, those tuition dollars are gone, so I wouldn't think about those anymore. <laughs> first of all. Uh, so I, would, I, I think there are a few very important ones here. So the, the first is that um, this message, when you walk by the patient's room, it, it conveys to everyone that the most important encounter and the first encounter should be electronic. And I think that is not a message that we want to convey to, uh, to anyone, particularly those that are learning in the environment, but certainly to nurses to your co-physicians, your co-residents, and others, uh, and certainly not to the patient. I mean, the patient's family could be watching this as well, and I think that's a, it's a statement or a message we do not want to send. Um, secondly, it, it sends the message that relationship building is, is not the, and physical exams, the bedside medicine is not important, or at least not as important as data, uh, electronic data, I should say. And so, um, you know, if you're watching this, this episode and you see what somebody does when someone, what a physician does when someone is in distress, then you're, uh, you immediately believe that the highest value activity is to get in front of a computer screen rather than get in front of a, uh, a patient and their family and to get um, bedside data, which I think is the message that we do want to send. And then finally, I think the bigger, and this is probably a culmination of all of those things, is that it sends the message that the patient is not in the center of our team's decision-making. Uh, in fact, everything that happened in the episode, as you described it, didn't involve the patient. It all involved a nurse talking to a team, resident going to a computer, uh, and placing orders and looking at laboratory tests. And so I think, again, the patient wasn't seen in that encounter, and I think that anyone watching it, the hidden, the hidden message there is the patient's not at the center of this. 
uh, in fact, not even really part of this, and it, it all goes around them. And I think that, again, is not a message that we want. We, we don't want to be sending that, I believe. Yeah, and all those choices I gave you, each of us was uh, having selfish thoughts about, about our own interests, and yeah. no one was thinking about the patient, really. Um, I guess you could argue the the person who put in the rule-out PE order set was somewhat thinking of the patient, but still, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, I think the the term the eye patient is something that I, I think I heard at your talk where basically you're just sort of the, you're, you're interfacing with the electronic health record as priority over the patient. And, you know, I've noticed it just so many times. I had noticed it even before I heard you point that out. And then since then, and I, I, it's, it's something that I like to point out to learners. Like if you get called that a patient's sick or a change in status, your first response should be to go to the bedside. Um, you, you just really don't know what you're dealing with. Like how, how like before you start going order a bunch of tests, you, you might be able to fix the problem with nothing or the patient might even be way sicker than they sound. And that, that's a, so that term, the eye patient was written um, by Abraham Verghese, and I think in, in JAMA when he was talking about this problem. And it is, once you uh, hear that term, I think it, it resonates because people see it all the time now. And, um, and I agree with you. I think that what we uh, don't want is for people when they hear a patient needs help, or is somehow worse, or somehow has a complaint that sounds very serious, is for us not to go to the patient. And, um, and that happens more and more. So we see it. I think we see it, we all see it all the time. And the only way to disrupt that is to model what you think should be done. And so I think this is an example of something that is so common that we don't even see it anymore. Um, but it's so important for us to disrupt that, uh, that we wanted to highlight it. All right. Dr. Williams, did you have a case for us? So new day, new case. Um, the next day on rounds, our medical student, i.e. me, um, precocious as ever, I'm standing outside the patient room and notice that the team's attending, um, examines a patient with C. diff infection and leaves the room without washing his hands. I then leave the room without washing my hands as well, um, like the duckling that I am. So at <laughs> which of the following is most likely to occur at, at our institution at Cashlack? So was it that the attending was distracted and would have welcomed a reminder to wash his hands? Is it that the resident reminds the team and the attending uh, discreetly and non-judgmentally that this patient requires soap and water hand washing before they see the next patient? Um, I think I can just sneak away and subtly wash my hands before we see the next patient. Or the resident... Um, Tells himself not to shake hands with the attending at the end of the rotation, which I think is my favorite option. So, in general, sort of what what Hindman curriculum um, is being demonstrated in this particular case, and and how? Yeah, so, and I think. Being... Yeah, so I um, this is again, I think a fairly common one, and I think the the hidden the hidden message here is that there is the, the there's power in hierarchy, uh, and the power of role models, and so uh, the idea again is that your senior person is not doing something, so that is how I should behave, and therefore, and therefore I will behave that way. And that's the message we want to disrupt. The, the second message here is that it create, this um, introduces or displays a learning environment that isn't safe. Um, so the idea, everybody knows you should wash your hands. There are signs all over those rooms that you should be washing your hands. And the idea that this student knows it and doesn't say anything uh, again, I think exposes a learning environment that isn't safe, um, and and that needs to be disrupted as well. So the two messages I think that are here, one is that 
<clears throat> the role models uh, or the senior physicians have a, a power that is uh, often not, I, I think, acknowledged or, or um, the influence of which is not understood as well as it, as it, as it should be. Uh, and then secondly, the learning environment is not safe. There's, there's a third one, the hidden message here, the, the third hidden curriculum message is that if the student recognizes that others saw this, and haven't said anything. It not only talks about the safety of the learning environment, but it also talks about or sends the message about our priority on patient safety. Um, so the idea that somehow that is deprioritized or undervalued um, secondary to hierarchy. And again, that is not, we talk all the time about patient safety. Um, and if we don't have a culture or an environment that lets us put that at the the top of the list, when we see something like this, then the hidden message is that it's actually not at the top of the list. The top of the list is behaving in the hierarchical order that our culture is established to maintain. Um, and so I think that is, a, again, another important hidden curriculum to disrupt. So uh, Friday evening, later that week, uh, the resident admits a 92-year-old patient has terminal cancer to the ICU with a pulmonary embolism, in shock, and respiratory distress. The patient's husband asks to do everything and seems very scared. Uh, me, the resident, uh, tries to explain that the patient is dying, um, and I wanted to learn more about the patient's wish it, wishes, but the husband is really not engaging in the discussion, and ultimately I leave to go place orders and take care of other work. When I come back to the bedside, I find the patient's primary care doctor, uh, Stuart, in the room holding the husband's hands. Uh, and after an hour, the primary care doctor explains to the resident that the goals for the patient will shift to comfort care and then sits back down with the family. Later that night, the patient dies peacefully. So in this situation, kind of what's the hidden curriculum we're getting at and maybe how can this be a good positive role modeling? Yeah, so this, this is actually a, uh, a real story from, from my experience. Uh, I was the resident and... Um, this was a patient in the ICU, and the primary care physician came in and did all those things. And I still remember everything, everything about that night and that interaction. I remember which room the patient was in. I remember the clothes that the, the wife was wearing. I remember what the attending was wearing when he came in. I remember that it was past 11 o'clock at night when this occurred, and they were coming back from a dinner, um, and they were dressed up. I, all of those memories... Uh, I think for me are an example of how powerful this hidden curriculum can be because I wanted to be like that person, that attending physician. So it demonstrated to me without them saying anything and without any intent of teaching me uh, what they were doing. It, it taught me the power of, of um, the end of life conversation. It, it taught me uh, how incredibly meaningful and valuable and what a privilege it is to care for someone, particularly longitudinally. Um, it taught me what it means to gain the trust of a patient and their family. Uh, it taught me what, um, what dedication is, what, what, um, you know, what we all value in, in, in doctors. And, um, it was an amazing moment for me, and I think it was hidden. It was none of that was intended. Uh, that he was simply doing what what he was doing, um, caring for his patient. And um, so I think there are so many powerful 
opportunities for us to influence everyone around you. And I suspect the nurses felt similarly. Um, I'm not sure if there was an intern there watching this, but if there was, uh, he or she may have felt equally influenced uh, and touched by this experience. But I can tell you, for me, it's 20 years ago, and it's and I remember it like it was last night. And so that, um, again, for me, is the power of this curriculum and how we can, all of our behaviors have such impact on everyone around us. And unless we're aware of that, um, we may not be uh, sharing our behaviors and our attitudes in the way that we, that we hope to. Paul, uh, when, when you were saying that story, it just reminded me of a physician that Paul and I both know from training. And uh, she has this, uh, has had an HIV practice forever in, in North Philadelphia. And you would call her anytime you called her She'd remember everything about the patient. She'd come and see all her patients and do her clinic. Sometimes she was on attending on the medical wards herself, but just like just the most dedicated, always visiting at all her patients, always available to all her patients. You know, never be the kind of person like uh, this. This doctor's on vacation; we can't get a hold of them. And I'm not saying that every doctor should be available on their vacations. I'm just saying that this is a person who. Uh, so much positive role modeling. Um, every time I would see this pa- this this doctor interact with her patients, and how much dedication she had. It just your story reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. A, a genuine hero will probably hear this episode and be deeply embarrassed, but that's okay. But she she knows who she is. Yeah, she's she's the one I've looked up for, for years. I don't know. I don't think I said her full name, but I think there's enough context clues that uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least yeah, people, people put from, it together. <laughs> yeah, uh, many people will know who she is. Yeah. Guys, is there any any other cases that, that you wanted to go through tonight or do you want to kind of wrap up or or um, Paul and Justin before we move on? I I think it's probably worth talking about the duty hours case yeah. as long as no one's sort of time constrained just because we did start a little bit late and also because it's just such a big topic. So I, I think there's probably two good reasons to maybe either finish with that one or at least make sure that we include it. Okay. Justin, do you want to read this one then, I guess? <laughs> sure, absolutely. All right. Um, so, uh, another night, the resident admits a patient with decompensated liver failure, uh, stays with the family all night, bonds with the patient and family. Uh, despite resuscitation, the patient, uh, declines and is not doing well, starting to develop multi-organ failure and is transferred to the ICU. The family asks to meet with the resident and the MICU team the next day to discuss goals of care. The resident asks her chief resident if she can stay for the meeting but is told instead to leave because it will be beyond her duty hour limit. The ICU attending leads the meeting, which was particularly meaningful as the patient was only 45 years old. She later asked the resident why she was not at the meeting because the family was asking about her. And, and so again, can we maybe talk about kind of what issues come up in this setting and uh, specifically with duty hours and, and the hidden curriculum? Yeah, so I, you know, I think this is a common scenario and there are more... Uh, challenging scenarios that that don't have the emotional charge of an end of life discussion that are happening at the end of that that duty hours limit. But um, to me, the the reason we included this is because I think that there is often this hidden curriculum from attendings and leaders of training environments that um, yes, we have to adhere to duty hours, but wink, wink, um, you don't really or if you do, 
then somehow you've made a choice to not learn. Or if you do, you've made a choice to, um, to, to prioritize other things over, over learning. Um, and it, there's a value judgment that's often passed down on that choice. Uh, again, a value that, judgment that's made by a supervisor, or a resident, a, a leader of a program um, that is disparaging to that, that intern or that resident that chooses to or that is adhering to decisions related to duty hours. And I, I think that is a, it's a prevalent scenario. Hopefully it's, it's less and less common as, as time goes on. But um, the hidden curriculum there is that um, a couple of things. One is that, uh, that you're placing a, that, that you're speaking to regulations and adherence, but you're not enabling them. And I think that's the most common curricular, hidden curricular attribute of this case is that um, you will put down on paper shifts that match the hours that we want our residents to adhere to, but then they go into the clinical environment and somehow the, the structures that they're, and rotations and the volumes and all of the things that they have to deal with every day in real life do not enable adherence. And I think that that has to that message is is the hidden one, which is that we're going to say this on paper. We want you to do it, but in fact, we're not going to enable you to do it. Um, is a message that it doesn't really matter. And so I think that's that's the first one, and that's a that's a very important one. the The second one, which I think is equally important, is one of professionalism. It it, it says to uh, trainees that yes, you're bound by these regulations as as we are as as training programs. Um, but they actually don't matter. And uh, there is a message about professionalism that I think can be very destructive related to um, any of the policies that we want people to adhere to when we take that type of approach. And so, and I don't put all of this on training programs either um, because an, an allowing enabling takes, it, it, takes, it takes a village, right? It takes uh, the program, it takes the faculty, it takes the academic medical center leadership. It takes everyone. Um, but too often, that village isn't there uh, to enable it. And, and so the message, again, the hidden message to the trainee is that this doesn't matter or that professionalism doesn't matter or that you're not making the right choices. And I think all of those things are messages that we have to disrupt. I'm going to ask a question I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer. Um, so that, that seems fair. But in any case, like I, I, you know, I, I, I worry, and I, because I think that we we tell residents they need to take care of themselves, and we take the duty hour seriously, and we talk about self care, and I think even as a program we mean it, and I, th I really firmly believe that. Like I don't think we want our residents burning out, but then we also talk about the idea of the hidden curriculum of the primary care doctor who comes in at eleven o'clock at night from their dinner to sit for hours with a patient's family, and that's really the way that we're supposed to be behaving. And I just how. How do you reconcile sort of the time that you need to invest to develop the relationships and the humanism that is fulfilling with while still encouraging self-care and time for yourself and not violating duty hours and supporting the principles behind that? Like, how do you how do you get both in the same training program? Because it seems to me to be a really hard thing to do. Yeah, no, that, that's a I think that's a really important conflict that you expose. And I you know that and, and it's set it's set up by this particular scenario because the duty hours are being challenged because of one of those meaningful experiences. But too often, duty hour, and actually the most common 
reason, duty hours, or talents are things that people just haven't completed. So I, I don't think that, I think you can reconcile this. I don't think that I would want um, to create an environment where people feel like they're um, not able to participate, enjoy, or learn from those types of activities that truly give you meaning, the reason that you came into medicine, um, and, and uh, create an environment that enables adherence to duty hours. I think you can, you can do both. There will always be some conflict um, because medicine is unpredictable and we can't uh, define time ahead uh, of time, the, the, ahead of a day, the way, the way that we can in other, in other parts of our lives. Um, however, I, I do think that these instances, at least the ones exposed here, <clears throat> Uh, can be reconciled. I think we can um, prioritize activities that give us meaning if, and, and we can do that even better because people can actually enjoy them and, and have space for them, not just physical space and time space, but mental space for them. If we're able to create uh, routine structures that in which people don't have to worry about duty hours. And I think that that's where it takes a village because that's out of the control, generally speaking, of one stakeholder that right. takes the hospital. It takes the program. It takes the medical center. It takes, it takes so many um, different people to come together and prioritize that to make that happen. But I, but I don't think adherence to duty hours somehow um, is in conflict with having meaningful experiences with patients. I know that you didn't take it to that extreme in the statement that you made, but, but I, I think those are reconcilable activities. I really do. It just has to be a systematic change and not something that's going to be done necessarily at the team level is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think that the, the, I, I think the systematic change that has to happen is, is creating an environment where duty hours are enabled. Adherence to duty hours is enabled and prioritized and understood and appreciated, in fact. Um, and if you're able to do that, it, again, it's not just the hours. I think that what we need to do for burnout is, um, is to create space. And again, when I say space, I mean more than just the time. I right. mean the mental space to be able to actually uh, immerse yourself in that moment. And, and those things happen only when you're not so compressed in the work that you have to get done before you leave. And so I think enabling a routine that allows adherence will actually, in my opinion, uh, allow us to enjoy those moments that we just described that are that are the reason we went into medicine. Yeah, Fantastic. That, that kind of statement goes back to what we talked about on last month's show, uh, where we were we were sort of talking about administrative burden, um, and and that would if the if the if that burden goes down the that w that could in some ways decompress the workday and allow more mental space and energy for these kind of difficult moments. You know, the, the I compare data that, that recently came out, uh, the burnout was high in both, equally high in both arms. Uh, again, which I think uh, disassociates it from duty hour policy. policy. I, I think it is driven by so many uh, deeper things related to the content of your day rather than the hours of your day that are, that are going to be hard to solve but, um, and actually aren't even quite understood yet. Um, and so I think understanding those and then under, and then designing or developing interventions for those, it has to be a priority for, for graduate medical education, because this is across, you know, all disciplines and independent of ours. And so I think, you know, how do you find that meaning? How do you create opportunities for it? How do you create mental space for it? 
Uh, I'm sure it's related somehow to the administrative work. Um, I, I personally believe it has to do with um, the, you know, things that are even less in our control, um, the types of patients, the severity of illness of patients that are actually hospitalized now, right. the, the helplessness we feel because we do ever, all these things and we discharge them, but then many of them are back in a month um, and they're not better. And so you feel helpless. You know, you've worked so hard. You think you've worked so hard to do this, to do this good thing, and then um, and you realize it's not having the impact that you had expected it to have. And and that that can be incredibly helpless. It can create a feeling of helplessness or desperation. So I, I think there and there's mental health issues, and there's there's so many. The we have an insatiable, literally insatiable volume of patients, right? So I mean, there's so many things that I think. Uh, are are con- that contribute to this this problem that we have to we have to understand it and then we have to intervene. But um, so I, so anyway, that was a long way of saying I don't I don't think duty hours um, and adherence to duty hours will be in conflict with this this solution to burnout. No, I I think that's perfectly said. I you know one of the things that I think that's maybe sometimes missed during this conversation is that things like visiting patients and being at those family meetings for me as a primary care doctor. That's the stuff that's restorative. When a patient I visit in the hospital says to me, I knew you would come and see me, that means the world to me, and that's the reason I wake up in the morning. So, yes, it takes more time, but that's the part that actually I find meaningful. And, you know, I think to to just draw a linear relationship between time spent in the hospital um, and burnout is probably not stating the facts correctly. So to create space, like you say, so that you can do those things that have meaning is is the key. So that was that really well put. I think for residents, too, anecdotally, at least for me, I, I agree that the times where I'm most well versus least well are not correlative to the the hours spent. But honestly, going back to the book recommendation you had, Sanjay, things like autonomy or feeling like you're having a certain level of accomplishment or that you're you're doing things, I think, um, create a much stronger support of environment um, than just East Street's workload. Weekends are nice too, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but, you know, the, so the, to that point, though, the, and this is part of the hidden curriculum conversation is uh, so many places are creating these initiatives for joy in medicine. And, um, and what they realize that many academic medical centers are creating policies around, you know, finish your discharge summaries by X and your notes by Y and your in basket by Z. And, and these are um, important, but the, the amount of emphasis that's placed on it sends this again, hidden message or not so hidden message really that this is, this is what we value. And it, it detracts, what it does is I think in my view, it deprioritizes what we actually value, which is taking care of the patient. Um, and it, it, that's an abstract thing, obviously, but it, it is what gives us meaning. So I think any of the, I think to find a successful initiative in joy in medicine or wellness has to somehow find a way to uh, promote these restorative, as you just said, at restorative moments. Um, how do we how do we ensure that we create opportunities for people to have meaningful experiences and 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 not uh, constantly every email you get is about you know the, what you're late on you know you're an hour late or you're a dollar short all the time uh, rather than you know how do you create opportunities to think about these moments that we have we have them so they're there it's just that we create you know you have to fight through everything to, to actually find them. And when you're having them, you're being 
called away to do something that's not restorative, right? So, so how do you create that space for those, and how do you ensure a reliable exposure to those types of moments? I, I think that is what we have to understand better and, and try to create in our, not just our training environments, which I think is really important to create it there, but in our professional environments, because that's where most of us will be for most of our careers. I think we need to wrap up and get uh, any take-home points. Um, if you had anything else you wanted to add, otherwise, if you just had something that you wanted to plug uh, or make make our listeners aware of, now's the time to do it. I think that um, so just to be aware of the hidden curriculum and how much influence that each of us has, no matter what your role is and where you are in your training or in your profession or your career, uh, that you influence everyone around you. And you constantly send messages about how people, um, what, what are norms, what's expected, and, and, and how people should behave. And so if we can all be mindful of that, we will create, a, I think, a much healthier and productive and satisfying environment for, for everyone. And if I were to plug anything, I'd plug your, your podcast. I think you guys are, are, are doing a phenomenal job of making us think about what's important in medicine, why we go into it, what's fun about it. Um, and it's really important to, to have this dialogue. And I don't mean necessarily the hidden curriculum. I mean what you do uh, regularly with this podcast. I think it really, uh, the hidden curriculum there is that this can be fun. This is important. And it is, um, it, there's no better privilege, I think, uh, for any of us than to to see patients and to have fun doing so. So thank you for what you guys are doing. Oh, well, thank you for saying such nice things about us publicly. What a, what a great pub. <laughs> yeah, great plug. I was just sitting nodding agreeing with you. So. <laughs> did, I, did I read that properly from what you wrote? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, that's a great spot to end. All right, this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There we go. That's the stuff. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and we want your input. Please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. Thank you to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams, who runs the Twitter, Beth Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, this is Justin Lee Burke. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. This feels weird. And I, re- <laughs> <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>